Ugly, Chapter 17, Planning for Pretty. One Saturday morning, after cartoons and cornflakes, my parents sat me down at our kitchen table and told me about a new operation the doctors had planned. The doctors want to do some more work on your face, Mom said. Okay, I said. Now that you're older, the doctors have an opportunity to work out what you might look like as an adult, she continued. They can make some small adjustments that they think might have a big impact on how you look. I nodded. And in another three or four years, they'll need to do another surgery that will make you look a lot more normal, she said. Dad looked up from drinking his cup of tea. The doctors say they need to do this operation to prepare for that big one, he said. Okay, I said again. I still had plenty of medical appointments. There was the orthodontist to see, and I needed new legs made every nine months or so as I outgrew them. But it had been years since I'd had an operation. I'd spent so much time at the hospital that up until I was about 12, I had the largest single file of any patient at Mater Children's Hospital ever. Then, either because I was getting too big a head about it or was too bulky to actually file, or because it was too heavy to carry around anymore, the hospital split my file in two. I was a bit annoyed by it, about it. All those appointments and operations, all the time spent sitting and waiting, and the one major achievement I had to show for it was being taken away. Somehow I'd fancied myself getting an entry in the Guinness Book of World Records someday. Largest hospital file on record, Mr. Robert Hogue of Brisbane, Australia, with a file 2,000 pages long and weighing in at 11 pounds. Then I was robbed by a technicality. Detailed memories of my operations had faded. I was left with vague memories of the cold smell of antiseptic and ammonia and bright surgery lights burning into my eyes as I counted backwards from 10. I'd been too young when I had my big operations to remember the before versus after, the dramatic transformation. No, the memories I had were of the pain from being cut open, chopped up, and sewn back together. My parents went on to explain the operation in full detail. In detail, The doctors were going to remove a chunk of cartilage from one of my right ribs and use it to rebuild my face, they said. Cartilage isn't as strong as bone, but it can easily be easily shaped. Will it hurt? I asked. Mom wavered for a second. No operation is ever easy, Robert, Dad said. You know that, but it's for the best. They talked for a bit longer, told me more about what was involved. At no stage did they ask me whether the operation should be done. I don't know what I would have said. Instead, they asked whether I understood. Yes, I said. The surgical team scheduled the operation for the last week of grade five so I would be well and truly recovered for Christmas, which falls in the Australian summer, just after the end of the school year. One lunchtime, I sat chewing a ham and cheese sandwich and talked about the operation with one of my classmates, Matthew. Maybe no one will recognize you when you come back to school next year, Matthew said. I hadn't even thought about that. My parents had mostly talked about minor changes. Maybe, I said. But if they're going to do a big operation, they'll have to improve how you look. I shrugged, but it sounded like a good plan to me. My face was still a changing canvas, painted on and over by everyone except me. Every time I looked in the mirror, I was reminded not only of how just how far from normal I was, but how little ownership I had of my face. I started to wonder just how much they could do with the operation. Maybe they'd fix the dents in the side of my head or make my nose look a little less squashed. Maybe they would smooth out some of my bumps and make me look not quite so Robert-like. Maybe after the operation, kids wouldn't call me names so much. 
The more I thought about the operation, the more I wondered how much difference it would make to how I looked. My parents kept saying it was only a small thing, but as the day got, big day got closer and closer, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Finally, it was time to head to the hospital. I'd had so many operations, the routine was still familiar. My parents would pack a few clothes into a bag. I'd add some toys and some books. We'd hop in the car and take the drive to Mater, where I'd be admitted and see some familiar old faces and lots of new ones. I'd usually come in a day or two before the procedure so doctors could check me out and make sure I was fine to be operated on. After I was admitted, I settled into my usual bed, said goodbye to my parents for the night, and thought about how different I might look in just a few days. Next morning, it was showtime. Morning operations were the best because you weren't allowed to eat for hours and hours beforehand. Having an operation in the late afternoon meant having to skip breakfast and lunch. I couldn't eat food, but I snuck a small sip of water from Mom, and she sat beside my bed and read books to me while we waited. Eventually, a nurse came and said it was time to get ready. I changed out of my pajamas into, into a special gown. Then I was wheeled into surgery. I waited outside for a few minutes where I was given an injection that made me sleepy. Then I said goodbye to Mom and Dad and was wheeled through two big doors. The operating room smelled like a super clean bathroom and was just as bright. It was full of odd machines and doctors and nurses in masks and gowns. I would have panicked, but the injection was already starting to make me feel groggy. When I reached the center of the room, one of the doctors put a mask over my face and asked me to count backward from ten. Ten, I said. All I could see above me were four bright lights. The lights pulsed like an octopus slowly opening its tentacles. Nine, I said. It was getting darker. The tentacles were getting ready to wrap around me. Eight, almost covering me now. Seven, then I was unconscious, claimed by the dark. The surgery took several hours. The team removed some cartilage from my ribs and partially rebuilt the bridge of my nose. They used leftover pieces to smooth out some of the other small gaps and bumps in my face and prepared it for the next operation in a few years. That would be the big one, the one that would make me look more normal. A few days after the operation, the doctors were ready to take off the bandages. My parents were with me as they slowly unwrapped my head. They said I would be puffy and bruised, that it would still take a while before we could see the differences. When I looked at my face in the mirror, the first thing I saw was my nose, big and bulbous, the same as it had always been. I couldn't see any change. My face was still just my face. I'd hoped to return to school after the holidays as a stranger, making my classmates wonder who the new kid was. That wasn't going to happen. As part of the operation, I had splints stuck in my nose. A few weeks later, they were due to be taken out. We arrived at the hospital mid-morning for what should have been a simple procedure, but when the doctors tried to remove the splints, they discovered tissue had grown around them. Actually, I was the one who discovered it when they first tried to remove them. The doctors had squeezed the top of my nose and gently tried to work the first splint loose. Pain shot through my nose and across my cheeks. It was like they were cutting my face open from the inside out. I screamed so loudly that my mom couldn't take it and had to go outside. Dad stayed with me and winced with every scream as they tried again and again. One way or another, the splints had to come out. The longer they remained in, the more tissue would grow. The doctors and nurses conferred in the corridor for a minute and decided they would put me under general anesthetic and remove the splints that way. Easy, except I didn't want any of that. I was always ill after a general anesthetic, and I didn't want to brave the dark octopus again. After years of doing what I was told, I decided I'd take a stand. I looked at Dad. 
I don't want to go under general anesthetic, I told him. You sure? Dad asked. I nodded. Let's just get it done, I said. The doctors looked at Dad and he nodded. I tensed up as the doctors tried again. The pain was as bad as anything I'd ever felt in my life, but I bit down on my tongue and closed my eyes and tried not to scream as they pulled out the splints along with the tissue that had grown over them. Blood poured out of my nose and I almost blacked out, but it was done. Sixth grade was much as the same as fifth. Games in the playground, unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully searching for a sport to play, until our elementary school rugby league coach, Mr. McConnell, let me help out coaching. Teams would square off when trials were underway, and he'd watch to see how well various kids played. I walked alongside and took tallies of which players were making tackles and which kids were making big runs. Every now and then, someone would come up to me and whisper, Hey, Robert, put me down for a couple of extra tackles, would you? For the kids I liked, I did. That year, we had the Great Spitball War of 1983. It started innocently, with a few boys removing the inside of their pens and screwing up pieces of paper to shoot at the ceiling. It rapidly escalated to a full-scale war. I tried to stay out of it, but two of the major combatants sat right behind me, and I was quickly dragged in. We soon graduated to pieces of paper that were rolled up and chewed until they were sticky with spit, then shot out of a pen like cannonballs. The war lasted only a few days before we were found out, and almost the entire class got a week's lunchtime detention that we spent not licking spit off the ground, but scraping spitballs off the wall. If we were tall enough, I bet they would have made us do the ceiling, too.